Welcome to this episode of Mission Business, a podcast about good business for those in the business of good, presented by your part-time controller, LLC, also known as YPTC. My name is Jennifer Oliva, the host of Mission Business and managing partner at YPTC. This is the first part of a two-part episode all about the business of nonprofit regulations. I spoke with Josh Studor and Beth Short of NASCO, the National Association of State Charity Officials, an association of state offices charged with the regulation and oversight of charitable organizations and charitable solicitation in the United States. In this episode, we discuss the history of NASCO as well as board governance best practices. And now my conversation with Josh and Beth. Beth and Josh, it's really great to have you today. Today's Regulator Day on the Mission Business Podcast. I'd love to hear a little bit about each of you. I'm Beth Short, and I'm in the Ohio Attorney General's Charitable Law Section. I've been with the office since 2008. I love my job. I get to work with great charities doing all kinds of wonderful things that elevate the quality of life that we all take for granted far too often. So I work a lot with charities, do a lot of training, outreach, and policy work, and find it exciting and inspiring to to keep doing it day after day. I'm Josh Studer. I'm an assistant attorney general with the Washington State Attorney General's Office based in Seattle, where the primary office is in Olympia, but Consumer Protection Division is up in Seattle. So I get the pleasure of being in the big city. I work for the Consumer Protection Division, which is the kind of umbrella where the charity enforcement and investigations and everything live for Washington. I've been doing this for about four years now, and I've been an attorney since 2008, which surprises me sometimes. (laughs) Uh, Before this, I was a prosecutor. So a lot of my background, I think of things in terms of criminal law and how that translates Mm -hmm. to enforcement and kind of consequences for behavior. (laughs) And hopefully nonprofits have a lot to learn from both of you today. Maybe on the training, what can they learn to stay away from the criminal side of things, perhaps? (laughs) Uh, Josh, (laughs) tell us a little bit about the AG's office or the attorney general's office and how attorney general's offices have come to regulate charities. This is some of the oldest law that we have in the United States. So it started way back in medieval England when they were developing the law of charities. Essentially what you'd have is people who would donate money for a specific purpose. And the people who were going to receive the benefit of that didn't necessarily have the ability to enforce the gift, make sure that it was used for its intended purpose. And so the law developed to allow the queen's attorney, I forget exactly what they called it, but the queen's attorney would enforce the gift and make sure that the charitable gift was used appropriately. So coming to the United States, we brought the history of common law from English common law over to the United States. Uh And it became the role of the attorney general to enforce the charitable gifts. Then over time, it became codified. And now In most states, the attorney general serves as the enforcement mechanism for charitable organizations and nonprofit conduct, charitable trusts, things like that. 
And just really making sure that the money that's given to charities or nonprofit organizations is being used specifically for the organization's purpose or mission. That's exactly right. So not every state has an attorney general that is in charge of regulating charities. There, It varies by state. Beth, you want to talk a little bit about that? So every state can set up a system that makes sense for their location. In Ohio, uh, we have state charity registration requirements for any Ohio charity or any charity that's soliciting Ohio. And in the state of Ohio, those filings are handled through the Ohio Attorney General's office. And so not only do charities have to register through our office, but we also are the ones that, as Josh was talking about, our job is to stand in the shoes of the beneficiaries and force trustees to do the right thing. So we take on our work, you know, based from the viewpoint of veterans or cancer patients or children or whoever is supposed to be the beneficiary of any particular organization. In some states, the state registration requirements are implemented through other offices. So mm-hmm. while the attorney general may be the most common office that accepts and handles those required filings. And by the way, not all states have a charitable registration requirement. Most do. In some states, it's through the Secretary of State's office. And I think that's the case in Josh's state. Um, In Florida, for instance, it's the Department of Agriculture. So (laughs) every state can set up a system that seems to make the most sense for how business and government and policy is done in that state. Um, But there will be someone there, wherever you are, looking out for the beneficiaries of charities and being able to stand in their shoes and try to make the right thing happen. How about NASCO? What's their responsibility and how do they help organizations? NASCO is the National Association of State Charity Officials, and we have a variety of tasks. The one that I'm the most involved in is coordinating multi-states to be able to increase communication among the different state charity regulators. So we can share information, we can coordinate efforts when it comes to maybe a multi-state litigation or investigation. I also have worked on the national conference that we hold every year. So that's one of the highlights. We put on trainings for any number of topics all related to nonprofits and charities. That's kind of my take on NASCO. Beth probably has a broader view. Well, I am the vice president of NASCO. And since I started in the attorney general's office, it's been apparent that paying attention to what goes on in NASCO is important because the thing I most value is stealing good ideas from my colleagues all across the state. (laughs) There are limited resources to spend all across the country on the important work of regulating charities To the extent that we can help each other share resources, ideas, it helps the general public at large. And so providing training for those who are new in state charity regulation, sharing resources, serving as the organization of state charity officials. I mean, I think years ago, uh, the IRS was viewed as the big player in charity regulation, and it's become very apparent over recent years that Frankly, in the state of Ohio, a charity is far more likely to hear from my office than they are to hear from the IRS. And so attorneys and CPAs and those who are players and stakeholders 
are interested in our conference and they want to know what's going on with state charity officials. And so to the extent that we pull together folks from across the country who may work on compliance issues and filings, lawyers, accountants, investigators, and share ideas so that we can most effectively do the important job that really needs to be done. So if you are a nonprofit and you want to find out more information about the state regulations for perhaps various states that you operate in, you can go to NASCO, right? Yes, the NASCO website has links to all of the state charity offices, and I suggest you hit those links to any state that you're operating in so you know what the scene is in Mm -hmm. any place you happen to be and know who the players are. It's nasconet.org. That's where nonprofits can go to get information about how their state might be regulated. The other thing that yeah. the NASCO website offers is the ability to sign up for a mailing list so you can add your name and get a bunch of news related to charity regulation throughout the country. It's better curated than a Google News Alert, and it's usually pretty important information. Beth, you were mentioning about the IRS. You might hear from your state regulator before you hear from the IRS, and I think it's widely documented that the IRS is way behind on a lot of enforcement and also just reviewing filings. How about the state regulators? Are they behind like the IRS? Are they having the same troubles with staffing? I think that anyone that works in a public office, a governmental office, there is never an embarrassment of riches. And so we're differently staffed throughout the state in terms of the state charity offices. Ohio is blessed to have a major section that works on charitable issues. Some states may have one and a half people. And so they make really critical decisions about how to spend their limited resources and try to get the biggest bang for their buck. And so there are hard decisions about priorities that have to be made in different offices. And that's why the support of NASCO can be really important to those folks all across the country who are doing this work. So what are some of the regulations or the oversight that you both have in your individual states for nonprofits? Many states require filings, like an annual filing and registration in a state and or an audit and or some other paperwork that must go to the state in order for them to be in good standing with the state. Every Ohio charity and any charity that solicits Ohioans, with the exception of exclusively faith-based organizations, so churches, temples, synagogues, mosques, don't have a requirement to do their filing with us. We do not have an audit requirement in the state of Ohio. We have the Attorney General's Charitable Advisory Council, and we have looked at that issue with members of that council. You know, Should we suggest a legislative change in the state of Ohio about requiring audits of groups above a certain amount in mm-hmm. terms of threshold assets or revenue. Um, We haven't gotten to that point yet. You know, the primary purpose of an audit is not to discover fraud. And so it's one of those issues where when there are public policy issues, what we try to do is weigh the costs of implementing those decisions. Because we know that charities are working hard and doing as much as they can to make the world better. And so every new requirement will subtract a small bit Mm -hmm. from their time and effort. But yet we have this charitable sector and accountability and integrity and transparency is so critical for communities at large to trust the charitable sector and these organizations that people depend on for basic 
even life-saving activities. And Mm -hmm. so we have to balance the inconvenience of filings, for instance, against how important is it in terms of trying to reach transparency, accountability, and protecting the integrity so that the public at large continues to feel safe in making investments in the charitable sector. So most of our focus in my office centers around board governance issues Mm -hmm. and trying to make sure that charitable board leaders know what their legal obligations and responsibilities are. And frankly, uh, in most of our enforcement efforts, there's been a board that's been asleep at the wheel in some manner. And Mm. so that becomes the center of everything. Both we spend time on training and proactive preventive measures, but it also plays such a disappointing role in a number of the enforcement actions that we end up taking. We're going to get to that in a second about the requirement of boards or the role of boards in governance of an organization. Josh, I'm wondering if you have anything to add regarding filings in your state or regulations in that way. Sure. So uh, Washington's actually undergoing quite a bit of change regarding this. The legislature, in coordination with the nonprofit sector, has redrafted the Nonprofit Corporations Act. And it created both additional resources for the attorney general to do uh, a variety of tasks, <laughs> including enforcement and investigation. <laughs> but it, it also just clarified a whole lot of requirements that nonprofits have to participate in. So in Washington, we have the non- Nonprofit Corporations Act, which requires annual filing by the organization. And then we have a Charitable Solicitations Act, which requires a registration for any person who is soliciting charitable donations from the Washington public. There are some exemptions. So if they don't make more than $50,000 a year and they don't have any paid staff, then they're exempt from registration. So we let the smaller ones do their own thing. We also have exemptions for political organizations and religious institutions. And then we also have the Charitable Trust Act, which is pretty common among the states. So those three are the primary statutes that we work from. The Secretary of State's office handles all the registration in Washington state. So we're one of the bifurcated states and Ah. they have some rulemaking that is relevant, but usually people don't have to interact with that when they're dealing with their charitable registration. So the laws or the regulations are different in every single state. You can go to the NASCO website, look up your state and find the organization or the department that regulates charities in your particular state to get that understanding of, do I need to file or send my 990 to the state? Do I need to have an audit in this state? What kind of paperwork on an annual basis, if at all, do I need to file? So that is an invaluable resource. So to change the topic a little bit to trends that you guys are seeing in enforcement areas that you're working in, but also what's happening in the nonprofit space that you are seeing. So Beth, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing come uh, across your desk every day? It's certainly no surprise that COVID has had a huge impact on charities all across the country. And it was very apparent from the very early days of learning what coronavirus might mean. And I have to admit, when I got sent home from work, I thought, we'll be done with this in two weeks. (laughs) We all Um, did. We all hoped. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And so it immediately raised concerns about, you know, we're all 
sent home, well, what does that mean operationally for charities? Uh, so we spent a lot of time trying to push out a bunch of resources, giving guidance mm-hmm. to charities about doing proper board governance and figuring out how are you protecting your assets when no one's at the office? Um, what are you doing about how you're delivering programs? So we wanted to help people do that in a smooth way as possible. I had mentioned earlier that we have a charitable advisory council, Mm -hmm. and one of them is uh, an Ohio State professor, and she has done two statewide, three, frankly, statewide surveys of our charitable community in the state of Ohio. We've done those jointly, and we've wanted to check in to see what issues are becoming problematic and if there are resources that we can apply to make it easier. So we learned that folks had concerns about volunteer management. That was one of the issues Mm. that came up in round one. You know, how do we keep serving people when we're not allowed to be together? Fundraising questions were always critical. I mean, so many groups plan major fundraisers in the spring in particular that may fund most of the year's activities. So what do those groups do uh, when they weren't allowed to have public events? And so it has had A tremendous and painful impact, but Mm. frankly, I think that the charitable sector showed their true colors by buckling down and providing even more services that were needed, particularly in the human services sector, having to serve more people because of so many folks who had lost their jobs and other pressures they had, finding new ways to develop service delivery plans, exploring new types of fundraisers that they had Mm -hmm. never before had to worry about. So we keep trying to keep our fingers on the pulse about how our charities are responding and if there are ways that we can provide tools to them. I think that the long-term impact of COVID, we haven't exactly seen it yet for the charitable sector. But I think as a lot of the public funds and stimulus monies start drying up, I think they're there may be a real painful impact coming down the road. So Mm -hmm. we'll continue to keep our eyes out on on that front. You know, in the beginning of COVID, of course, almost 100% of our clients are nonprofit organizations. So we were very concerned for the sector. And I think we've seen, like you said, a lot of success stories of resilience and being able to survive throughout. You haven't seen any trend of increased dissolutions since COVID? No, frankly, and we've been somewhat surprised by that, and we keep monitoring that. Not only have we not seen an increase in dissolutions, but we also haven't seen a slowdown in the creation of new charities. Mm. And by the way, that's been the same observation that our Secretary of State's office has observed in terms of filing for new nonprofit corporations, which is done through our Secretary of State. Um, We'll see how long those trends hold. Clearly, those groups that used COVID as a chance to sit back and take a break, I fear their long-term viability, my guess, is more endangered than those who jumped in, kept going, kept thinking strategically Mm -hmm. about hard decision-making that was needed. So again, we'll have to wait and see how all of this pans out in the longer run. So there are still a lot of charities being founded and opened up, and when there's so many uh, nonprofits already in existence starting a nonprofit. If somebody's thinking about starting a nonprofit, what should they think about? Please don't. I say please don't. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, please, gosh. Please don't. For the love of all that is good on the earth, when you have a great idea to make your community stronger, your first step does not need to be forming a new charity because many people aren't prepared for the commitment that it takes to run this business in a really thoughtful way. And they would be far better off instead to work in partnership with a, a more developed organization that has figured those out and see if it does have legs, this concept where you will then be able to get to a firmer footing if you do decide to go ahead and start a new charity. But it takes a lot of work and a lot of commitment to run a charity like the business it needs to be run with a level of seriousness and commitment by a number of people. It is a serious business, as we're talking about right now. Regulators, the IRS, uh, you are taking public funds in support of that mission. I say it's like a public company and is regulated as such. I think the biggest concern that I have with people starting new charities and and often concerns with smaller charities that the boards that are involved and maybe the original incorporators, the people who want to help out, the, the family members who all get together to be on the board, they generally are not executive directors by trade mm-hmm. or accountants mm-hmm. or treasurers or any number of other mm-hmm. type of professionals that are needed to do this kind of work. And There are laws, both in common law, but then also in statute, as to the duties of directors and and officers. And if a new charity forms and a new nonprofit corporation forms, they've put themselves in a position where they're expected to meet all of the duties that are required of them, even if they're not aware of what those duties are. So, for example, there's a duty to account. What that means is that Mm -hmm. every charity or charitable trust needs to be able to account for their charitable assets at any point in time and be able to provide that information to someone who asks, particularly a regulator. That's the biggest concern that I have with people starting new charities is that they don't understand the obligations and the potential legal liability that it creates just to start handling charitable funds. Uh, My wish would be that anyone starting a new charity first has to go through some training and then sign off saying, I get it. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. My one wish, if a genie came out of the bottle and uh, wanted to know how we could make the charitable sector more effective for American citizens, it would be making sure that folks who are involved understand what all the obligations are. And while... These problems come up with small organizations. It is shocking and disappointing how often they also come up with large organizations that one would think should know better. And yet things also go wrong. So my goal is to have people talking about board governance and everyone's talking about it because it's something that all the cool kids are paying attention (laughs) to. It would allow citizens to have a lot more trust in the really important work that charities do. And we see the headlines of the frauds or the terrible things, stealing going on at nonprofits or just really bad mismanagement. But that's not necessarily the people behind some of the biggest issues that nonprofits have. It's the uneducated or the non-trained individuals that go in to run a charity with excellent intentions, good intentions, and end up being, I guess, your problem. (laughs) And if they had that training and development in the beginning, then perhaps it wouldn't have gone that far. 
Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to Mission Business Podcast. My name is Carol Melvin, and I'm a senior manager and leader in YPTC's Washington, D.C. office. YPTC is currently hiring nationwide. We offer a flexible work environment, 35-hour standard work week, perks and incentives, full benefits, as well as full and part-time positions to fit your needs. The best part? You can use your accounting skills for good and directly impact the success of amazing nonprofit organizations. At YPTC, we know that a career is not one size fits all. We are dedicated to a workplace guided by trust, support, education, integrity, equity, community, and strong relationships. YPTC is consistently recognized for its strong and employee-focused culture. Most recently, we appeared on Inc. Magazine's Best Places to Work list and ranked second in Accounting Today's Best Accounting Firms to Work For. So what's next? Are you ready to love your job? Apply today on YPTC.com or contact careers at YPTC.com. We can't wait to meet you. We talked about board governance. What are some of the things that you're seeing as problems with boards now? The biggest thing that I'm dealing with, it seems to be on a regular basis, is people who commingle funds in any number mm. of ways. It's very common to see commingling of private accounts of the executive director with the accounts of the charity. And this harkens back to what you were just talking about, where it's not necessarily an intentional malfeasance, but it's something that they don't know any better. But as a result, what you have is either like someone goes to Walmart and gets their groceries and they say, well, I'll use my charity's debit card for this one and I'll pay it back later or whatever. Yeah. And then they can't account for the, the problems. I But I also see commingling and I'm using that more broadly in the mm -hmm. context of instances where you have a for-profit and a nonprofit both run by the same individual or the same groups of individuals. And there isn't that extra step to make sure that there's no conflict of interest. So you could have person A, both running their nonprofit and running a fundraiser. <laughs> and yeah. they don't have a board properly screening. So I see both of those things as big problems in board governance. Now, the other thing I see that's pretty common is not following the corporate form, not meeting regularly, not voting, not keeping minutes. That may seem like petty stuff that you don't really want to do and you shouldn't really have to do. But ultimately, it protects the people who are involved because those records can be provided to people like me to say, hey, this is yes. what we did and when we did it and why we did it. And we all voted on it. And it, it protects the board members from individual liability in some circumstances. If you get questioned by a donor or someone goes to the state regulator and says, hey, I, I think you should investigate this nonprofit, potentially it will get to a point where that state regulator is looking at your minutes, looking at your governing documents and seeing if you're in compliance, correct? That is question number one, two, and three in my <laughs> civil investigative demand when I send it out to a new charity. Yeah. Yeah, so you are watching. Yeah, for sure. Josh is watching. I could point out another thing. When harm is done to charities, it's not generally by a stranger off the street. 
It's someone that is well known to those who are involved in that organization. And sometimes those of us who get involved in the charitable sector do so because we have this generous spirit. We're trusting of people. And so Mrs. Smith has been the treasurer for years. And I don't want to insult Mrs. Smith by suggesting that Mrs. Smith should not be the only person doing financial activities for the group. And we need to set up processes, um, trust is not an internal control. And so setting up, you know, internal controls that allow accountability, like Josh has talked about, is job number one for board members. And so many times we see these kinds of things that have happened and the board has been totally asleep at the wheel, whereas it's not that much harder to do things the right way. It only takes marginally more work to do things the right way by involving multiple people, but it buys you a whole lot of sleep at night and it's what you're required to do. You are just singing out of my songbook, (laughs) Beth, because oftentimes what we see is there is a lack of oversight from the board when we come in to work with an organization and they haven't asked the right questions. They're not saying, where are the financial reports? We haven't seen a financial report in a year. That should be a red flag. How far behind are we on our 990s? Oh, three years? That's a huge red flag. And boards should be aware of this and asking those questions. And I think where they get into trouble is abdicating decision-making to executive directors or others in management instead of taking the proper board responsibility and following their duties of care. When you're a board member, you're responsible for what you do and what you fail to do. And so not ensuring that these practices are in place is a breach of your duties. And it really endangers the long-term viability of that organization that people rely on. It's really a lot easier to get in trouble with this than you might think, because the standard, at least in Washington, is gross negligence. So what Beth was just talking about, where you know you can get in trouble for what you're not doing, if you are supposed to be doing something and you're negligent about it, it can rise to the level of you personally as a board member being sued and being responsible for all of the liability that the nonprofit gets in trouble for. I'd also like to add just one pitch to, you know, request to everyone who's listening to please don't have family members on your board. You need independent actors on the board. And if a husband and wife team are the executive director and the treasurer and there ends up being a conflict, you know, yeah. it's really problematic. I have one board I'm looking at right now who has five family members, direct family members, husband, wife, three kids, all on the same board. And oh, there's only 10 people on this board, which means that sh- the main person kind of has a bl- voting block of half of the board before walking into to anything. So it's not a good idea to have family members on the board. It looks bad when regulators look into it, when donors look into it, but it also just keeps yeah. your organization from functioning well. Absolutely. And I was going to say from a donor perspective, I mean, this is a good takeaway for our audience to be looking at those type of things. If you are giving any donations, you want to take a look at the organization's website, which typically will have the financial statements, audited financial statements and the 990 on there. And you can take a look on the 990 of who are the board members. And typically they are also listed on the organization's website. So important information for all. 
when I go out and do board governance trainings, um, there is a scared straight part of training <laughs> where we talk about how things can go wrong. And so I don't want board members to fear serving as board members. We're greatly appreciative yes. of folks who are willing to step forward and provide community leadership. You know, we all have different sizes of bank accounts, but we all only have 24 hours in a day. And so we need people to be willing to step forward and perform these roles. That's right. We're appreciative of folks that are willing to do that. But we do want them to avail themselves of some of the tools that are out there so that when they do do the job, they do it in the right way. And that will be a far more rewarding experience yes. for them on a personal level, as well as honoring that mission that they're excited about being supportive of. Yes. And thank you for saying that. We don't want to scare away all of the right. capable board members out there and who might not have the perfect experience, but can get the training to do so. Right. And, you know, in the state of Ohio, we have specific language. We don't expect people to be lawyers or CPAs or financial gurus. They need to conduct themselves with the level of care, skill and diligence that a normally prudent person would use in how they handle their family finances. So if you wouldn't cash your paycheck out on a Friday and put the cash in a paper bag and leave it on the porch <laughs> for your son to pick up before the next day, don't do that with the booster club's concession stand money from the football game the night before. <laughs> So if you wouldn't do it with your own money, don't do it with the charity's money. And so it's not rocket science what we're asking charitable leaders to do. It only, again, takes this much more work to do things the right way, but it buys your organization long-term security, which is far more rewarding for everyone. You know, mm -hmm. I became the treasurer at my church. And... Before I became treasurer, the only way to get out of being treasurer was to move out of state or die. <laughs> and I wasn't really interested in a life appointment, but we didn't really have well-developed policies. So we spent time, what does it look like to do a responsible job handling the financial activities? And we developed a number of practices. I would do a report. And before a report would go to our governing board, it would be reviewed by two or five people who would go in and view our accounts reconcile the information, yes, make sure that I was providing a complete and accurate report. And these are the policies that boards need mm -hmm. and must develop. These policies protect the organizations. They protect the people doing these important roles like me as treasurer because I didn't feel I was in it all alone. And thirdly, it helps with continuity and I am no longer the church treasurer because others <laughs> became willing to step forward and perform these important roles because we had a way of doing business and it yes. made sense. And yeah. it's just how things are taken care of in that organization. So, you know, the smallest of charities can develop those same kinds of practices that, you know, really yes. comply with what they're obligated to do. Well, I love how this conversation is going because we did start out with the scared straight conversation of how much trouble you can get in as a board member, then turned it around to training and what you need to know, talking about policies that you should have in place as a board member and follow them. And then succession planning. You did a great job of succession planning, Beth, at your church. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I swear, you know, the accountants and the attorneys and people involved in nonprofits always get the tough treasurer jobs, and it's really hard to get out of them, I know, from personal experience. Yeah, so th this is what keeps organizations vibrant over time. 
And failure to take these kinds of things seriously can really limit the life cycle of charities. And so there is no shortage of resources that are out there. People can look online. If they happen to be in a state like Ohio, we like to think we have a lot of helpful resources on the Attorney General's webpage to help people think through what kinds of policies and practices. But even if you don't have that in your state, there is no shortage of stuff out there that can prompt people to get a better understanding of how to do things the right way. There's a board source, there's the National Council of Nonprofits, and like you said, your state charitable regulators also have a plethora of information on their websites where organizations can find out more on how to better govern and uh, what policies they should have. Highly recommend going and checking some of those out. Josh, anything to add on the board governance conversation? I'll just add that a lot of states have nonprofit organization uh, umbrellas, I guess. Uh, Washington State, for example, has Washington nonprofits. And you can visit their website to be able to get a bunch of free and then sometimes paid for information about how to start, run, dissolve a corporation. I think probably the majority of states have a similar organization that is often taxpayer funded. And so it's a good number resource. Thank you for joining me for the first part of a two-part episode of the Mission Business Podcast. We look forward to bringing you more stories of innovation and perseverance from nonprofits around the world. I want to thank the team at PWP Video for their guidance and assistance in the development and production of this podcast. They are a great partner for Media with a Mission, and you can find them at pwpvideo.com. Additional information about this episode can be found at missionbusinesspod.com. And follow us on social media at Mission Business Pod on Instagram and Facebook and at Mission Biz Pod on Twitter. I want to thank our guests for this episode, Josh Studor and Beth Short of NASCO. This podcast was produced by Erica Blair and Geraldine Dressler of Your Part-Time Controller, LLC. Dave Winston and Michael Schweizheimer are our producers from PWP Video, and the show was directed and edited by Pat Ganley. Again, I'm Jennifer Oliva, and we'll see you here next time on Mission Business Podcast, presented by Your Part-Time Controller, LLC.